Genesis 28.1, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and all that you give me I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we pray now that you would take it and make it effective in our lives. Teach us and instruct us. Lord, give us eyes to see things that maybe we haven't seen before or, or things that we need to see and be reminded of today. Lord, your spirit works in and through the preaching of your word. And so we pray that your spirit would work effectively in our hearts, that we would be receptive to your spirit's teaching us. So give us tender hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our own experiences, in our own testimonies, we often recall those experiences of witnessing, at least our perspective, was how we were moved to a place where we put our trust in God. 
We even might articulate it that way, that we were seeking God, that we found God, that we discovered who the person of Jesus is and what he had done for us. However, as we grow in grace, according to Scripture, we begin to see that it wasn't that we were seeking God. It wasn't that we found him or we discovered him, but rather that he had been pursuing us all along, that he had been coming after us. We see God's effectual calling in our lives and we see how he made it effective that he worked in such a way to bring us to the point of saving faith. We look at the words of Jesus in John 15 where he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And we begin to realize that we were not the initiators in the relationship. Rather, God is the one who initiated the relationship. And it's true in every one of our lives. And it's true in all of history and all of biblical history. That we do not love... God out of our own good effort or goodwill. We love only because He first loved us. He set His affections upon us and we respond then because of the new life that's been given to us. And so, as I said, this is the story of all of our lives. It's the story of all of Scripture. We go back to the beginning and we see this in the story of the garden. That what was Adam and Eve's response After they sinned, they ran away from God. They went and they hid. And God did not wait for them to turn and respond. He pursued them. And every story after that is a story of God's amazing grace and how He pursues His lost sheep. And this is the story of Jacob now. We've seen Abraham pursued and Isaac pursued, and now we see Jacob pursued. It's not because Jacob is worthy, but it is based solely on the sovereign grace of God. You see, Jacob's story is our story. All of us, whether we realize it or not, uh, we were pursued by God. He sought us and brought us to himself. And so this is the story that unfolds before us today. As we begin looking in verse 1, we are right on the heels of the the previous chapter, what had just happened. The storyline is continuing. There's no time gap here. Rebecca has just gone to Isaac. She has not told him the whole truth. She claims that she's concerned that... Jacob will marry from among the Canaanite women, and she she says her life's not worth living if that happens. Well, that's not a bad thing, and uh, Isaac agrees. He he knows he's been taught by his father that uh, that he needs to lead his sons to marry uh, within the believing community, not to intermarry from those who were pagan or who didn't believe. And so he comes, calls Jacob now before sending him out to say to him, you shall not take a wife from the Canaanite women. This, in a sense, echoes what Abraham had done for him, even though Isaac had not been born yet. Certainly he heard this story. If you remember when Abraham... We don't get the instruction by God, but we certainly can recognize God led him or instructed him in this way. Abraham did not want Isaac to uh, marry. I said that he had not been born yet. Certainly by the time that the servant went out, he was born. But my point is, uh, Isaac may not have been aware of all of that at the time, but certainly was told that story later. Well, when the servant was sent out, he went and was sent to the same place now that Jacob is going. And the servant was 
you know, Abraham called him to make a vow to him saying that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanite women. It was a preserving act. Abraham recognized that if Isaac uh, intermarried with an unbelieving community, it would have been convenient. The women were right there, the Canaanite women, to find uh, a suitable partner uh, for, for Isaac would have been much easier to do so from right there. But recognizing that he needed to go back to Padan Aram, and that's where he sent the servant, he did that. And so now Isaac is doing the same thing with Jacob for different reasons. He, it doesn't appear that he's, he's, um, he's aware of the threat that Esau has made. If you remember, Isaac is old. He's lost his sight, appears to, appears to be bedridden. So a secret like Esau's murderous uh, accusation or murderous uh, uh, claims that he was going to take his brother's life could have been kept from Isaac at this point. And so he uh, calls Jacob to himself to go and send him to Laban, who is Rebekah's brother. And then in verse 3, we see him pronounce the blessing over Jacob. It is the blessing, in a sense, very. it's, it's the same blessing that he's already given him, but it's the context is a little different, and there's some additional language that's used here that we haven't seen before. Look in verse 3, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you, or may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave Abraham. As we look at this, we see right away the name of God, Almighty God, that's used here is the name El Shaddai. And this takes us back to Genesis 17, when God made the covenant with Abraham, that's where that name was introduced, that God Almighty, the one who is all-powerful, would do this. And this is important. You know, we, we read the word in English, God Almighty, or even the name El Shaddai, uh, the popular song, and it's, it may be softened because we're so familiar with it. But it's important to recognize what's being communicated about who God is, that the one who is all-powerful, In other words, the one who can accomplish all of this is the one who is giving the promise. And if you think about it, this is important because in Jacob's eyes, none of these things are close to becoming uh, a reality. He was far from, I mean, he didn't even have a wife. How could he become fruitful? He didn't have uh, possessions, really. There was very little to his name. And so this promise then uh, was going to have to be received in faith. The promise is to make him fruitful and multiply, that he would become a company of peoples. And here, this phrase, company of peoples, is one of those new expressions that we haven't seen before in the promise. And the language is really, the the, the word for people there is, is also the word for nations. It's the idea that Jacob would become a company of nations, And so what this point, it's interesting to think about what this points to is not just what Jacob would become. If you remember, as we look forward, we know how the story unfolds. Jacob's name is going to be changed. It's going to be changed to Israel. And Jacob would have these 12 sons. And and so this the, the nation is forming through Jacob, but it's a single nation. The people of God being revealed through the nation of Israel. But we have the perspective and the privilege of being able to look back and see how that was not the extent of God's promise and intent in the covenant, that it was always bigger than that. 
And we see hints at it throughout. I mean, we see hints at it all the way from Genesis, but we see the hints expanding more and more in the revelation that's given throughout the Old Testament. But when we come to the New Testament, we see that, wow, this is not only going to go to the nation of Israel, it's going to go way beyond. It's going to go to every nation and tribe and tongue. You see, it's interesting that the word here that's used for company of nations would later be translated when the Old Testament from Hebrew is translated to Greek and what we call the Septuagint. That word for company of nations would become the Greek word ekklesia. And of course, the Greek word ekklesia is the word that we translate church in English. And so there is a sense of foreshadowing here that is beyond what Jacob can comprehend that one day the scope of God's redemptive plan, this was going to go way beyond Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel as, as revealed the, the people of God within that, that, that country or that nation. This was going to extend, as many of the prophets foretold, this was going to extend to the ends of the earth. We also see in the promise that it's tied specifically to the covenant that's made with Abraham. So there's this language of transference. May the promise that was given to Abraham now be to you, to Jacob. So we've seen it go from Abraham to Isaac, and now it's going from Isaac to Jacob. It includes the land that was promised to Abraham, which again is remarkable to think about because if you look at Jacob's life at this point, he doesn't have a whole lot. He is headed in the wrong direction. He's headed away from the land. He doesn't have a wife to, to become fruitful, to have a family, so that he might become a company of peoples. And he is being sent now to Mesopotamia, and yet all the promises point backward to what he's leaving. And so, again, we would say the promise had to be received in faith. And this is a, a point at which we might pause and consider the grace of God. Jacob has not demonstrated himself to be a worthy recipient. He has not been, he has not been a man of faith. He doesn't appear to have any faith. He has been a man driven by his own plans and schemes where Esau was rash and his appetites were out there and for you to see. He had no qualms about saying, give me the stew. Jacob was functioning in the same way. He was just more shrewd about it. If you think about his willingness to join with his mother and lying to his father to trick him into getting the birthright, that birthright had already been promised to him, but Jacob wasn't willing to wait. He wasn't willing to wait on God's timing, and he took matters into his own hands. That's the opposite of faith. That is a faithless act. When you think about even in his doing so, and he's lying to his dad multiple times, as we saw previously, he invokes the name of God in one of his lies, and he, he, he verbalizes it as your God. So Jacob is, is not, the, the, from a human perspective, a deserving recipient. He doesn't look like a man of faith. Not that faith makes us deserving. It just looks like none of the ingredients are there. And this is worth considering because he is, like us, uh, enemies of God. When God sent Jesus to die for us while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, he graciously pursues us in his redemptive work. My point is, none of us is deserving. None of us come uh, willingly uh, in the sense of, uh, of our own accord. 
We come willingly only after we have received God's grace and been made able to respond. And so as we see here in Genesis and as we see in our own lives, it's always only grace. It's always by grace and it's only grace. And the story of grace is really only beginning now for Jacob as he is sent away. In verse 6, the narrator switches back to Esau. And we get the sense that Moses wants us, there's a contrast that he's trying to set up here. In other words, it's the other side of where the flesh takes us. And Esau is on that trajectory. Jacob would have been on that trajectory had God not interceded. It's the story of all of our lives. Had God not intervened, had God not pursued us, this is the way in which we would go. And so we 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 look at uh, Esau's... Uh, it looks like a last-ditch effort to change his parents' mind about the blessing. Jacob had tricked his dad. He had gotten the blessing. Esau is envious. He's jealous. He still wants it. And so he's studying his brother, and he realizes, okay, Jacob's going to Mesopotamia, to, to Laban's house to get a wife. Maybe that's what would make mom and dad happy. Um, and then he takes a shortcut. Oh, here's Ishmael, yeah, I, he's a son of Abraham. I could just go take one of his daughters and, and marry her. I and mean, that's not really a Canaanite. He had already married these two Hittite, these two Canaanite women. This is a picture of what self-righteousness accomplishes. When we take matters into our own hands, we flub things up kind of like Esau did. It was, it was really like Esau was clueless. He, he really didn't understand any of what was at play here. And so all of his efforts were just one big flop. It reminds us a little bit of the older brother and the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the older brother just couldn't get it. He thought that he had to earn the father's affection. And so he couldn't understand and became jealous when the, 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 the prodigal came back and repented and was shown this favor, the favor that he had enjoyed all along. He wanted more. He was jealous. He was envious. And he thought it was something to be earned. Well, Esau is acting in the same way. And it's what we do when we act out our own self-righteousness, when we try and earn God's favor or earn God's love by our own trying to try, we're trying to make our works meritorious. Uh, we think that coming to church or reading our Bible, that God owes us something for doing those things or that he'll love us more, that we're somehow safer or, or, or whatever the context. All of that is false. God is the one who has pursued us. He is the one who has set his affection upon us. And we respond in love and gratefulness in faith. We're trusting him. We're not accomplishing any of the work ourselves any more than Esau was able to accomplish anything. He was walking in the flesh and he was now reaping the results of a faithless life. We then in verse 10 turn back to Jacob and it's hard when we think of Jacob in, in, in contrast to, to Esau because so far there's very little to like any more about Jacob than what we like about or didn't like about Esau. In other words, how is Jacob walking by faith? Well, as we will see in this story, it wasn't anything Jacob did. God didn't look down and say, I think Jacob's a better candidate. I think I'm going to set my affections. He's got more potential. Uh, he shows real promise. No. God set his affections on Jacob before he was ever born. 
He decided before the twins were ever born who would be the line of promise, who he would set his affections upon. We might look at that and cry, how unfair. But what we should do is look at that and cry, thank you, Lord, for your mercy that you've set your affections upon me, that you haven't allowed me to walk in the way that I would walk on my own accord, to walk in the flesh, to walk in a life that is faithless. It's important for us to keep in mind that Jacob is not seeking God. He didn't, this wasn't a spiritual journey that he set out upon. He was not on a quest to, to find God. He was not showing any, any, any indication that he wanted to bring glory to El Shaddai. He was simply running for his life. And so as he ran away, he, um, uh, gets as far as he can the first day before the sun sets. It says in verse 11 that he came to a certain place and he stayed there the night. Now Moses uses this phrase, a certain place, and it does become a certain place. But to Jacob, it wasn't, he didn't pick this place. It was just the sun was setting. He stopped here. But this place is going to be transformed overnight as a result of the dream that he is about to have uh, he's on his way again to Mesopotamia. And when we zoom out and we look at the whole story, we realize that this is almost an exile for Jacob. These, these, these couple decades that he is down in Padan Haram with, with Laban and, and, and he'll marry Leah and Rachel. Uh, this is almost a time of exile while he's away from the land of promise, away from Canaan. And so this dream and another dream serve as really two bookends from the narrator's perspective of this period. Now, the second dream, which isn't really called a dream, but most understand it to be such, is when we know it's the, it's the story that we're, we're familiar with of Esau or Jacob wrestling with God. And so that is upon the return as he's coming back to Canaan. But this is the beginning. This is the first experience. And in between these two dreams where God comes and reveals himself to Jacob, he is going to marry, as I mentioned, twice. He's going to marry two sisters. Uh, there he will experience, because of this, the victimization really the same that he inflicted upon his father. He tricked his father. He lied to his father. Now Laban is going to lie to Jacob to get him to trick him to marry Leah first. He didn't love Leah. He, he didn't set his affections on Leah. He, had, he was in love with Rachel, wanted to marry her, thought he was marrying her, and Laban pulled a quick one. Uh, he'll begin having children. He'll start a family. And not only will his family grow, but Jacob is going to become prosperous. The Lord is going to cause him to flourish. And so in this period of time is kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly of life. All of this is going to emerge. But what's important for us to remember as we move toward that part of the story is that we remember this, the covenant, the promise that's been proclaimed over him, that this is protecting him. This is reigning over him. The promises will not falter. We've already seen the other patriarchs have received the blessings, the promise. And the blessings are both physical, real blessings, as well as spiritual, realer blessings, and that they last, they're eternal. Uh, the patriarchs didn't always understand all that the blessings intended or would mean. And yet this didn't mean that because the promises had been placed over them, that their lives would be ones of ease and comfort, that their lives would be uh, ones where they never saw harm or were never threatened. 
And yet the end result is that the promise never failed, that nothing within that suffering and that difficulty and those unexpected things that would come their way, that the covenant would ever be undone. It was held true. God kept his promises, but it was at the right time. And this is what we see so often. We saw it with Jacob. With the, he, he couldn't wait to receive the promise, the blessing, the, the, the birthright that God had promised him from the womb. And so he took matters into his own hands. This is the same thing that we do. We know what the outcome is supposed to be. And so we somehow try and lay a hold of it without waiting on God. It's a reminder again of the importance of waiting on God. And I realize that if you're in a pattern of waiting right now, uh, this is hard to hear because your initial reaction, if you're anything like me, when, when someone says it's important that we wait on God or let's just wait on God or you need to wait on God, your, your, your reaction, if you're anything like me, is well, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm dealing with. I went out of this mess. I want deliverance. I want provision. I want an answer. I'm tired. This is hard. I want to be free from this. And as we look back to, to the, the, the patriarchs and those who have gone before us in the faith, what do we see? We see that in, in spite of the difficulties that they faced, the promise held true. And just as they had that promise placed over them, you and I are under the blessings of the new covenant, the promises of the new covenant. And there is nothing that will break the promises that are ours in Christ. And so no matter how heavy the weight of waiting feels upon you right now. Know that nothing can stop the promise. That promise of the new covenant and all that it entails reigns over your life. This is what Paul was getting at when he wrote in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Paul's way of saying from A to Z. He tries, I mean, he covers everything, anything else in all creation, anything I've forgotten, anything I've left out. So it's anything, everything, all the things in creation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jacob has yet to understand the absolute reliability of El Shaddai, but this is the beginning. God pursuing him and revealing him to himself that Jacob begins to grow in grace, trusting God more and more. As we look at the dream, we see that it involves this ladder that comes down. Depending on your translation, the ESV renders this ladder. But as I read and studied, most people think it probably looked more like a staircase. Some even even suggested the the ziggurat, that uh, like the Tower of Babel, and that you have seen in history books from ancient time, that it was this towering staircase. And that would have uh, made it easier at least to visualize uh, what it looked like for angels ascending and descending on such a device, a ladder that's hard to really understand what that would have looked like. But regardless of the physical characteristics, it was a sense we get the idea of what's being described, regardless of what it, it, it's, it's clearly we're not given any more description. So we don't need any more description. The point is, there is a, a, a connection, a bridge that has stairs or ladder legs on it that's connecting earth and heaven that Jacob is now seeing. And and and, and when we think of the Tower of Babel, 
if that, if that is one image that comes to our mind, uh, it becomes even more significant when we think of the episode of the Tower of Babel and what the people there were trying to accomplish. The people there, if you remember the story of the Tower of Babel, you remember that they were trying to do two things. They wanted security. They wanted to be protected. They didn't want to be scattered. Uh, so they were looking for security. And then they wanted to make a name for themselves, right? They wanted significance. Ian Duguid points out that they were looking for these things, and yet they were successful in neither attempt, that God frustrated their plans. And yet here what we see in this dream that Jacob has is the answer to the Tower of Babel. Jacob is making no effort of his own. He's not like the people of Babel. Who's, he's not building a tower. He's not seeking God. God comes and pursues him. And he puts the staircase, puts the tower, puts the, 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 the ladder between him and Jacob. And with angels ascending and descending on it to demonstrate to him, I'm your security. I'm your significance. You don't have to go and seek these things on your own. I am going to be these to you. And so what the people of Babel sought in futility, God graciously gives to his people. He gives it to Jacob in the promise. Look in verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. You see, the God that those in Babel couldn't reach through their own attempts comes graciously to Jacob, reveals himself at the top of the staircase and says in essence to him, the promise is yours now and I will make you significant and I will keep you safe. So the promise is no longer your father's. The promise is no longer your grandfather's. It doesn't stop being their promise, but it's not just theirs. The promise has now been transferred to you. And so when you think of Jacob laying there with his head on a rock in the middle of nowhere with nothing to his name, No wife and no children. And yet this was the promise of God to him. And so as Jacob awakes the next morning, he is overcome by this whole experience. Look at what he says in verse 16. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. We see in this amazement, we see fear. There's an awareness of something he didn't know before that God was present with him. Uh, this is, there's a lot of, of indication in the language of, uh, of an awareness of God's saving work. This is either where God saves him or where God is faithful to the work as he leads him to save him. Uh, but we've seen how the promise that was made uh, both to Abraham and transferred to Isaac, it is now given to Jacob's. Jacob is in the line of promise. I will be with you. This is the reigning promise that I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He says this here to Jacob. We call it the Emmanuel principle, right? The, 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 the idea that Emmanuel, God is with us. The promise that was given here to the patriarchs, 
The, God, the promise that was given to the people of God in the nation of Israel is the promise that is now ours, even that Jesus gave before he departed, saying, I'm with you to the end of the age. We know that God is with us. It's more than just the idea that he's omnipresent, that he's everywhere. It's that he is with us personally and lovingly for our own good. And what a comfort this is in times of difficulty. Well, Jacob is blown away by all of this, and you see it in his language. It is both emphatic and exclamatory and the the way he talks, it's not like anyone we've seen so far in Genesis talk this way. It, it, he's surprised. He's overwhelmed. He's overcome. And he is surprised that, that, that God has pursued him, that God has shown up. He calls it the gate of heaven. Don't think like Indiana Jones or anything in that realm. It's not like that. It's, it's the understanding that the God who created all things and holds all things together has condescended to come and to meet Jacob in covenant. The idea of the gateway, though, brings us back to the story of Babel because that was the name Babel. That's what it meant, gateway to heaven or gate of God. But Babel was not the gate of God. It was a man-made attempt. It was a man-made creation. And just as the same sense that it was not the rightful gate to God or gate to heaven, Esau was not the rightful heir. He was not the one to receive the birthright. It was Jacob who was to be the recipient and the line of promise. In other words, again, it's all God's grace. And the dream now confirms that Jacob is the rightful heir. It speaks directly to him, and it sets the stage then for the rest of redemptive history. Jacob gets up the next morning, and in a response to the stream that he's had, he uh, performs an act of worship. He takes the rock, and he pours oil on it to consecrate it. Jacob's not worshiping the rock here. Uh, he's, he, he's, that's not what's going on. He's setting the rock up as a monument. Called, it's, it's called a pillar here. That the, the, the rock would become a memorial or it would serve to commemorate what God had done there. Jacob wants to remember it. He wants to both worship God in thanksgiving, and we see that later in the vow that he makes, but he wants to remember this incredible experience that he's had. And we see this practice performed a number of times in the Old Testament. And it was the practice of creating the memorial was always acceptable until there was a time when the people of Israel began to turn it into an act of worship and begin to worship the rocks or the pillars. And then God indicted them for that sin. But the, the notion here, and we have our own memorial. You, you have probably recognized it in the parking lot. Ten years ago, that memorial was erected when this building was built as a reminder of God's faithfulness. It's this, this idea of a memorial is where we get the line in the hymn, Come Thou Fount. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Uh, we, we sing that, Hither by thy help I've come. Uh, unfortunately, in modern versions of that hymn, that, that line has been changed. I forget what it says, but it's something about God being a treasure. It sounds similar, but it's, it, it doesn't really say the same thing. And the line's fine. It's not a bad line. But I, I'm disappointed because I didn't know what this meant when I was a kid. But once someone explained it to me, what here I raised my Ebenezer, it became so meaningful to me that I prefer that original line in the song. And it's this idea that we create or we, um, uh, in our minds, erect a memorial to the things that God has done that we come back to again and again to remember His faithfulness. That when we doubt His goodness, 
That when we doubt His love toward us, that when we doubt His very existence sometimes, that we come back to those Ebenezers, those memorials, and we remember, no, 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 God is faithful, God is good, God loves me, God has set His affections upon me, He has promised to me, He will complete the work that He's done in it. Nothing can separate me from His love, and we remember His faithfulness. And so we come back to those Ebenezers again and again. That's what Jacob is doing here. He also changes, he, well, he gives a name to the place. It doesn't say that he, he changed the place. It just indicates that the name of the nearby city was called Luz. But he gives the place where this occurred the name Bethel, which means the house of God. What's interesting about Luz is that that name, that noun for the name Luz, it comes from a verb that means to uh, depart. But that verb, when it's used uh, figuratively, means devious or deceptive. And so I think that, uh, and, and I'm not, this is not original to me, I, other people pointed this out, but I agree with them that, that there's some wordplay going on that Moses is using here in recounting the name of this town that is reflecting the change that is happening in Jacob's heart in and through this experience. That Jacob, the devious one, the deceptive one, the one who has lied and schemed, is being transformed into a man of faith who will walk in that faith by the grace of God. Jacob responds then, he makes a vow before God. He says in verse 20, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and all of it and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth back to you. Now we read that and we see that if-then statement and our minds typically look at that and say, that's not really a vow, that's a negotiation of some sorts. And the intent of Jacob's heart, Moses doesn't tell us what his intention was here. Some have argued that he was just being good old Jacob, trying to, make a, uh, trying to negotiate, trying to haggle with God, so to speak. Others have suggested that this was just his way of phrasing what God had already promised to him. And it's, it, it was his way of saying, well, because you're doing this, then I'm going to do that. And he just uses the if-then structure. Well, since we don't know, I'm not going to tell you one way or the other. What I am going to point out is that this does reflect our growth in grace. That while this may have been immature, either that Jacob was negotiating, haggling, trying to haggle with God, or that it was just an immature way of reflecting it, is that we're all growing in grace. We can all look back at our lives and realize things that we did, even after we were believers, things that we said are not the way that we would say them today. Not the way we would do them today. I, I find that when I... When I'm going back through old notes, I have sermons from over 20 years ago. And when I read through them, I think, what was I saying? What did I mean? Or that's not how I would say it today if I were to preach that today. That's true in all of our lives, right? We're all growing in grace. And so part of that growth in grace is not only recognizing that God is taking us in that direction, but God is always also taking other people in that direction. There are times to correct. There are times to, to, to help people uh, understand and grow. 
But there are also times to just give grace, to be gracious, understand that we're not all going to say things perfectly, phrase things perfectly. I know that there are things that I say and do. The benefit of recording this stuff is that I hear them now. Uh, unfortunately, it's already recorded, so unless I'm going to do it again, I can't change it. But uh, I could edit out stuff. I haven't had to do that yet. But I'm, I, I usually just chuckle, and I know you probably do too, that I, I say things that are incorrect sometimes. I get words flipped around. Uh, several weeks ago, I said something about uh, Iliad writing the Odyssey. Instead of Homer writing the Iliad, which was in my notes, I somehow turned that into Iliad. Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, but I flipped that around. Well, that's a picture of how we're growing in grace. None of us are perfect. None of us are doing things perfectly. None of us are saying things perfectly. And so regardless of whether we know the intention of Jacob's heart here, I think one of the things that we can do is recognize that we can be gracious toward other people and kind toward other people. Now, the last thing that we see in this vow that that, uh, Jacob makes before God is this commitment to tithe. He says, I'm, I'm, of everything, I'm going to give you a tenth back. And that's the principle of the tithe. And we see that in the Old Testament. It doesn't really uh, emerge in the New Testament as a principle, the, the, the term tithe or the principle. I think it was embedded in the people of God at that point that it was simply a principle of uh, we, we should at least, at least give back the tithe. But we're called to be generous. We're called to be gracious. We're called to be cheerful givers that we would give not only uh, out of the abundance, that has been given to us. Uh, Hopefully we grow in our ability as God blesses us. Some more than others are able to do this, but that we would give generously to God. What we need to see here is that it is a, this is not a duty. This is not about a guilt trip. This is not about someone standing up front and beating a pulpit or let's pass the plate one more time. This is about worship. Just as Jacob responds in worship that he wants to give back to God, that is our motivation. It is worship that is born out of hearts that are thankful, grateful for all that God has done, that we then want to be generous and give back. We don't want to be stingy and hold on to and and, and keep for ourselves. We want to be free and cheerful in our giving. Well, we'll continue to follow Jacob's journey in the coming weeks. But the thing that we need to remember and keep in mind is that this covenant, this promise that God has given Jacob will indeed go with him, that nothing will break it no matter what he faces, that the the God who is faithful, the one who keeps all of his promises is the one who walks with Jacob. He is with him. He will never leave him. And just as we look back on Jacob's life and the other patriarch's life and we see God's faithfulness to them, so we can live our lives with the same confidence that the same God is the same faithful to us, that He will never leave us, that He will never forsake us. This is easy to do maybe when we're sitting in a worship service or maybe when things are good in our lives and everything is going according to either our plans or our expectations or we feel like we have everything we need. When this is particularly hard or when unexpected difficulties come our way. And when the unexpected difficulties come our way, we typically struggle to believe that God loves us, that He intends good toward us, and that He will deliver us at the end. We doubt all of these things. Those aren't, that's not an exhaustive list. There are other things. Maybe those are just the things that come to my mind the most or the things that I hear from others the most. But that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the real struggle is. And so we need to come back 
to these accounts in Scripture. We need these stories of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and others to see that God never changes, that He is faithful. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this faithful God would continue His redemptive plan through His people, and this would continue through history. And so when the writer of Hebrews opens up that letter and he starts out with these words, he says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. And then as we consider that and what we read this morning from John 1, when Jesus was calling His disciples and we hear Nathaniel call out to Him, Rabbi, You are the Son of God. And Jesus said, You think because I saw You under the fig tree, wait, you're going to see the Son of Heaven, or the Son of God, uh, or the Son of Man revealed, uh, rather, um, with the, the gates of heaven uh, opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending upon Him. Jesus takes Nathaniel and the other disciples back to this story, this story of Jacob's dream. And He demonstrates that what that was a picture of was not just the Tower of Babel overcome. It, it, it is a picture of that. It's a picture of God's redemptive grace. But that, that, that picture of God's redemptive grace has a name. And the name is Jesus. That Jesus is Jacob's ladder. He's the true stairway to heaven. He is the one who has bridged the divide between sinful man and God by doing what He did, by putting on flesh, by condescending, by coming down, and by living a life and dying in our place. That by faith in Him, we might enter into a lasting hope that is ours. And so as we move then through the book of Hebrews, we get to chapter 3, and the writer says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. He's quoting the Old Testament prophet. He says it multiple times. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. The story of Jacob's ladder is a call to salvation. If you have yet to put your trust in Christ, then today is the day of salvation. Don't, don't let another day pass. Don't harden your heart. Recognize God is pursuing you, that God is calling you to Himself and respond in faith. It's not just a call to those who have yet to believe. It is also a call to those who do believe. It is a call to come again and again in faith, to trust the One who is pursuing us as we grow in grace. And so, May His grace continually soften our hearts, that our hearts wouldn't harden, that we wouldn't become hard-hearted or or stubborn, but that as our hearts are softened by His grace, that we would turn to Him in faith and in repentance when we sin, turn to Him again and again and again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is our prayer today, that because of who Christ is and what He has done for us, may we hold fast our confession that we are trusting in Him alone, that He alone has wrought our salvation, that we bring nothing to the table. We cannot build one step in the staircase to reach You. We cannot climb one step in the staircase to reach You. We can only come as Jacob did when you reach down from heaven and you extend Christ to us, the bridge between the Father and man, and that we then look to Christ in faith and believing Him, 
are received into our heavenly reward. Lord, would you work that in our hearts? I pray that for those who have yet to believe, that you would draw them to yourself, saving them in this truth. And I pray that for us who do believe, that you would deepen our awareness and need of the gospel, that we need the gospel every day, that we need to hear that call to faith, that we need to hear our need to repent, and that as we do fall and sin, which we do daily, Lord, would you lead us to that repentance quickly, that our hearts would not become hard, but that we would be made tender by the grace that has been shown by the God who pursues us. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.